Well, for this afternoon's psalm meditation, we will be in Psalm 39, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the 39th Psalm, and we'll be briefly meditating here on God's Word, again, Psalm 39. Well, this psalm is a lament, and David feels the disciplining hand of God upon him, and he reflects in this psalm on the brevity of human life. The human life is short, uh, and it's fleeting. He seems to be in his old age as he writes this psalm, so perhaps he's simply recognizing that his physical decline and his imminent death are part of the curse for sin. Uh, He's tempted to complain about his condition, but he restrains himself when others can hear, lest he would give wicked men an excuse to rail against God. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit has inspired David to write this psalm, and he's done so for use in public worship. The caption actually reads, To the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. So David composed this psalm with the express intent that it be used in the worship of God uh, in the temple that his son Solomon will build uh, in the tabernacle in his own day, or at least in the, the worship place where the Ark of the Covenant has been brought into uh, into Jerusalem. And the expression there, to Jedithan, in that caption, uh, could indicate that it's a particular tune or a meter or a musical style, but Jedithan was likely the name of the choir master that David was actually writing this to. Uh, so it's to the choir master, particularly to Jedithan. First uh, Chronicles sixteen forty one and forty two and uh, twenty five sixty three and six, or rather, uh, yes, uh, twenty five verse three and six. Uh, they mention Jedithan as uh, one of the chief musicians of David's day, so that would make sense that he's addressing this to Jedithan. Uh, there are two main sections of the psalm. Each is punctuated by a statement on the shortness of human life on earth. Uh, Verses 1 through 6 begin with David's silence before men and his pouring out his distress before God, his plea for wisdom in this context, and the statement on the brevity of life is in verse 5, Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Then verses 7 through 13 begin with David's statement of his hope in the Lord, and they end with his prayer to be heard by the Lord. In between, he reflects on the brevity of life, culminating with the declaration, Surely all mankind is a mere breath. So each declaration of mankind, he uses the word Adam there, uh, being as a mere breath is followed by a selah in the Hebrew an instruction to pause and to reflect on those words. And so we are called by God's word here to reflect on the fact that our lives are short, they're brief, they're fleeting. We also should note that David's divine son, Jesus Christ, is the ultimate fulfillment of these words as he bore the weight, not of his own sins, but of those of his people. And so he could cry out to God for this kind of help and recognize, of course, the brevity of his own life on earth before his death and resurrection. Well, David begins here saying, I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. 
I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. As Jesus would keep silent and not speak in his own defense before those who were accusing him, and certainly he would not sin with his speech, not even by seeming to disrespect the high priest, so David restrains his tongue here in the presence of wicked men, that the wicked might not hear his complaint and be emboldened to blaspheme the Lord themselves, saying, look, even David complains about God. What kind of God could that be? The, the words translated in the English Standard Version, as I just read it, about holding his peace to no avail, they're kind of awkward in the Hebrew. Uh, I was silent from good, and my pain was stirred. But what does that mean? Uh, well, likely, David is saying that he kept his mouth shut so that, again, that the wicked would not have a reason or an excuse through anything he said to disrespect God. But, nevertheless, uh, his pain was growing within him. He wanted to cry out to God, and he was waiting till he could do so one-on-one, as it were. And so, finally, he has to speak, but he does so to the Lord and not before the wicked. So, in verse 3, My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. Maybe you've felt like that at times, where you've had to just keep something to yourself, and that that fire burns in you until you can bring it before the Lord. And what he speaks is a prayer. And again, we can think of Christ, who said nothing in his own defense, or anything that might bring reproach on the Lord, but then spoke to the Lord even from the cross and made his prayers from there. And so David, starting in verse 4, says, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And then there's that selah, there, the sila that teaches us to pause, reflect. It is a fact that mankind, Adam, stands as a mere breath in God's presence. The word there for mere breath in the Hebrew is hevel. It's the same word that's translated as vanity in Ecclesiastes, when Solomon similarly reflected on the brevity of life. And how apart from God so many things are meaningless. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. That's this word, hevel. Breath. It can actually mean vapor. And when it's used in a context like this, to say mere breath, it brings to mind a cold morning perhaps when you're outdoors. Especially if you're breathing heavily. Maybe you're working outdoors on a cold day. And you can... See your breath. We all know that. I remember as a child just being fascinated when I re- realized on certain days I could see my own breath. Isn't that neat? Well, you don't see it for very long, do you? It disappears right away. So it brings to mind that mist of your breath on a cold day. It doesn't hang around. It vanishes quickly. Human life is like that, David is saying. I'm reminded of the, there was a medieval poem, if I recall correctly, an old Anglo-Saxon statement on how Life was kind of like a when you're sitting in the king's hall and the windows are open and a bird flies in one and flies out another window. <laughs> so it's just like he's, he's there for a brief moment, probably doesn't even quite understand what was going on in the king's hall, and then he's somewhere else. And that's 
kind of what our life is like. So David here compares it to vapor. It's also a personal name. Adam's son Abel had that same name. Vapor. Breath. David's words could be read, Adam is surely Abel. As if to say, the life of man is short, like Abel's. Anyway, we read it, David is saying human life is short. It disappears quickly. Sometimes, like Abel's, it's cut off shortly. Like his son Solomon in Ecclesiastes will do, David notes how little earthly things are worth in light of human mortality. What what does this mean? Even unbelievers make statements like, well, you can't take it with you, right? Compared to God's eternity, we know that earthly things are of little account. And so, David says, verse 6, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. You heap up wealth, and it's not an evil thing to heap up wealth as long as you do so righteously. But again, you can't take it with you, can you? Who knows who will profit from it after you're gone? The nothing again there in in verse 6 is that same word again, hevel, vapor, breath, vanity. Surely man goes about as a shadow, surely for hevel, surely for nothing, for vapor, for breath, for vanity. They are in turmoil. So that's the first section. In the second section, beginning at verse 7, David then launches into a prayer. As Jesus' life would be laid down, and after a brief time, uh, and then uh, he had an expectation of vindication thereafter from God, so David also prays for that kind of vindication. As Jesus bore the sins of his people, but would be delivered from the grip of death, so David prays for deliverance. So starting at verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Notice what he wants deliverance from. From the consequences of his own sins. He's not blaming someone else for his own sins here. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. So he won't open his mouth before others. He recognizes that this is God's just chastisement of him. Jesus bore the just punishment not for his own sins, but for ours. David recognizes his own need in these verses for salvation. Neither Jesus nor David accused God of wrongdoing in all of this. For the penalty was righteous. It was just. So David prays, trusting in God's grace, appealing to God's grace. Starting at verse 10, remove your stone from me. Excuse me, remove your stroke from me. It's not a stone, it's a stroke. I just misread. I probably should have put my glasses on. Uh, Remove your stroke from me. So the stroke of it, like the hand of a father disciplining his child. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Think of a a moth flying toward the flame. He's attracted to it, then he just burns up. Again, another image of the brevity of life as well. 
but God's hand of discipline could consume mankind. Unless God relents from his just anger at sin, mankind is consumed. And so David again calls us to reflect on the fleeting nature of earthly life, ending with one of those selahs again. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. And then he concludes the psalm with a prayer for relief from God's discipline and and for comfort, which can only come from the faithful Lord, as he recognizes that this world is not our home, but only a place of brief sojourn. If human life in this world is so brief as he's acknowledging, then for us to have an ongoing relationship with the Lord, there must be something more. But this is a brief sojourn, a place that is not our home. Hear my prayer, O Lord, he says, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. So in other words, a sojourner. I'm living in a land that is not really my home. Now we can hear Jacob saying something like that when he lives in the land of Egypt. That's not the land that God intended to give him. But even about his time in Canaan, he referred to that as a pilgrimage, as a sojourn. Because he knew there was something else beyond this. Well, David is among the people who have inherited the land. So he's clearly talking about something bigger than that. He's a sojourner. His life on earth is a brief stay in a land that is not really where he belongs. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and am no more. So he appeals to God to look away from him in his anger, to look on him rather in forgiveness. And so as David sang and prayed to the Lord, let's turn in our psalters and we will... Uh, pray and sing this final portion of Psalm 39. We'll turn to 39b. Let's stand together and sing praise to God. 39b.